So good morning, brothers and sisters. Given the honor once again to bring you the Word of God. And um, I know it was mentioned earlier, but uh, I know there's been a tragic event that has happened uh, with a deacon of our church, our beloved deacon. But we are to also put God number one. And I know that my brother Eric, my cousin Eric, would agree that our God is number one. The exposition of his word is an important part of our lives. So as we read through these scriptures, as, as, we, as I speak about them, um, even though that is in the back of our mind of what is going on, to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So if you would rise to read our scripture, I'm going to be speaking on Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 25. But to get some context, we're going to begin in verse 18. So that's from 18 to 25. And the reading of the word is, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Praise be to God. Let's go to him in prayer. Father God, we are grateful, Lord, that you have given us this time together as a spiritual family to go through your scriptures, to hear your words revealed to us by the Apostle Paul, knowing, Lord, that your scriptures your words the lamp to our feet is perfect and it is perfect because you are infallible you cannot err and your scriptures if they are yours cannot err we know this lord we believe this lord and we know that you are all powerful and that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven May you bless this time and may you open our minds and give us wisdom and discernment to understand your words. For these things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So in the reading of this word, as I wanted to begin with verse 18, just to give us context, as was spoken about last week, the sufferings of this present time What we are going through right now, whether as bad as it could possibly be on earth, or at least just dealing with our sin and our sin nature and sort of things that are out of our control. We know, we know this because the scriptures are true and 100% 
without error. We know this. And it tells us that there's going to be this glory that is going to be revealed to us. And that glory is what we're going to look at today. It's going to speak about the creation, how it's also waiting for this glory. And how we are waiting for this glory. And that the hope that we have, it's a hope that we do not see. But it's not the hope that we use when we say, I hope that the Dodgers win the World Series or that the Lakers make it to the finals or this. It is a hope that we know is sure. It is true. It is right because God says it and he has guaranteed it. I have titled this sermon, Creation Awaits Glorification. Let's begin with the creation that is awaiting this glorification for it states in verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. You notice here that this creation, where we are right now, is awaiting eagerly something that is going to happen not only to the creation, but to us. The revealing of the sons of God, as we've talked about earlier, is when we are glorified at the final resurrection, when Jesus himself comes back and it states that we will be translated. It will be like a twinkle of an eye as we will have our glorified bodies and our spirit and our soul, which has already been regenerated, will now our body, our physical body, will be regenerated into a perfect state just like Jesus Christ. As it states in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. And thank God for that, because if this was the final state, I've got to tell you, I'm not satisfied. My body is a walking sin, sinful state. It's a dead man walking, if you really look at my physical body. But we know that when he appears, notice when he appears, there's a second coming. There's not three, four, five, six, seven comings. We talk about his first coming where he came and he died on the cross. He lived a perfect life. He was resurrected and then he ascended to the right hand of the father. But when he appears, that's the second coming. We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We will see him with our eyes. Just like the apostles saw him after he was resurrected. Where then he went to Thomas and he says, touch me. Know that I am real. And he ate with them. It is a physical body, but it is a glorified body. Because although it can eat and it can feel and it can touch. It can apparently go through walls. It can be anywhere. Because that is the body that we're going to have. Something that does not decay. Just like our body right now decays. And as it states in Philippians 3.20 and 21, but our citizenship is in heaven. I thought our citizenship was in the United States of America. Obviously, this is speaking about our spiritual state. Who owns us? Who we are as a family, as an adopted family. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body 
by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Just like his body, we will be given, we will be transformed into that same type of body, that glorious body, by the power, which is that Holy Spirit that has done this, the power of God that enables Jesus Christ, the Lord, the Trinitarian Lord, to be God of this entire universe, not just this section, not just this building, not just my home, not just this country, not just this hemisphere, not just this earth, the entire universe, the entire creation. Now, I wanted to read this quote by William Hendrickson. I think it puts it beautifully and it teaches us the meaningful phrase of the revealing of the sons of God. States, beautiful and very meaningful is the phrase, the revealing of the sons of God. It indicates that not until the day of Christ's return will it become a matter of public knowledge. Just imagine that. All these scoffers that are out there that say, you guys believe in something false. You believe in a spaghetti monster, as some have said, from the sky. And it will be vindication to show them, hopefully some for repentance, the public knowledge of who Jesus Christ is, as he has said, he will be coming back. The public knowledge, how much God loves them. That's the sons of God. And how richly he rewards them. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father, as it states in Matthew 13, 43. And they shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever, as it states in Daniel 12, 3. They will be on exhibition so that all will be able to see what God has done for and in them. We are going to be used and as exhibition to teach the nations that Jesus Christ is all powerful, that our God has done this work, that we will have glorious bodies that will not decay and be with our God eternally. Praise be to God that that is what is being, uh, what we're waiting for, that eager longing as also the creation is awaiting. But as it also states in verse 20, it states about the creation being in bondage. Just like ourselves, we were in bondage when we were not saved, when we did not know the pleasures of our Jesus Christ, of what he's done for us. For it states in verse 20, as we read earlier, verse 20 and 21, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You see the parallelism, right, of the creation with the people of God, the bride of Christ, as we are going to be transformed and we're going to be changed. So will the creation. There's those that will state the creation, this earth, it will be no more. As in stating that it will, it, it will not even exist anymore. But here, as we've constantly see, seen, 
that it's making that parallel that as our bodies, these physical bodies are going to be transformed, also this creation is going to be transformed. And that's what we call the new heavens and the new earth. But as the creation is subjected in futility, it is in bondage, it is subjected. It will be liberated from that present state of imperfection and decay. But that imperfection and decay is what we're going to see here real quick. What does that mean? The, the Bible in the Genesis, it uses this, the phrasing cursed land. As we will read here in Genesis 3, 17 and 18, when God is giving Adam what uh, pretty much is going to happen to him. What is the future of the human race? And it states, and to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I, I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. That is interesting judgment because... I don't know if you, if we really know this now as we're city folk and we're really not out there growing crops and doing this and that, but it's not easy. And there are seasons and sometimes the, the plants and, and the crops, you know, they get, they get drowned in a lot of the rain. That doesn't really happen over here very much, but it happens in a lot of other places. Natural disasters, things just don't grow the way they are. Things get corrupted. So many different things. And at one point in time, as Adam was cultivating the Garden of Eden, it was something that was simple. It was easy. He still had to work, but he had to work only for the Lord. It was glorious to do that for the Lord. And it was, it was something that was just, it, it was able to be done because the ground was not cursed. Here we see the ground being cursed. What is being told us that the thorns and the thistles, it shall bring for us. That's not what we want. We want, we want fruit, we want vegetables, we want the good stuff, right? And then as it is also stated in Genesis 5.29, it talks about how the land, the ground is cursed, but it kind of gives you a little picture, a type of Christ that is to come. As it states in Genesis 5.29, and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So we're seeing that the ground is cursed, but there comes forth this Noah. This Noah is the one that saved, well, through him, the Lord saved humanity. In the ark. It was his family. It was his kids. And their, and their wives. It was a recreation of sorts. But yet it was not a final recreation. It was not a new creation. As Jesus Christ has done. That's why we consider Noah a type of Christ. Because he's pointing to the seed of the woman, the one that is going to relieve us of that toil, of that hardship. 
See, because in Genesis, two Lamechs are mentioned. There's the Lamech from the line of Cain that is mentioned in Genesis 4, and the line of Seth, the Lamech from the line of Seth in Genesis 5. And that is also part of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, as we'll see here in Luke 3, 36, 38. I know there's a lot of names, but as only the names that we really are going to emphasize are at the end, but I'll read the whole thing. I'm sorry, at the beginning, not at the end. It says, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, that's the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. We're seeing the two lines that were, that were given in Genesis 4 and 5. And from that seed of the woman that comes through the line of Seth, because unfortunately Abel was killed by Cain. As we all know these stories, right? Kids, that Abel was killed by Cain. And so then there was a new brother that was born. And that is the line of the Messiah that goes through Noah, that goes through Shem, that goes through Abraham, that goes through David, and finally reaches our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So that creation will one day not be subjected to futility, to bondage. But at this time, that creation, just like us, are groaning together. As it states in verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Man, we could make multiple sermons just on that verse. But let's break it down real quick. The groaning is a sign with frustration at the limitations of this present life with its sin, with its weakness, with its corruption. It is a personified expression because obviously the creation, we don't speak to the creation. Hey, how you doing creation? Nice to meet you. How you doing? How's it going? We don't speak to the creation that way. But here it's giving it a personification like if it would speak, like if it would groan because it is awaiting glorification. And this has been seen. I just want to show few, two scriptures that show that this language is used for the earth, for the ground, for the creation. Jeremiah 12, 4a and verse 11. How long will the land mourn? The land doesn't mourn. This is a personification. How long will the land mourn and the grass of every field wither? And verse 11, they have made it a desolation. Desolate, it mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate, but no man lays it to heart. And once again in Jeremiah 23:10a, for the land is full of adulterers, because of the curse the land mourns. And the pastures of the wilderness are dried up. So you're seeing here that it's being given a personification of mourning. And later on in the New Testament of groaning. It's groaning for that transformation, for that change, for that redemption, that revealing of the sons of God. And it also puts it as groaning together in pains of childbirth, as in labor pains. I thought it wouldn't, it is not better 
summed up by the words of John Calvin, although I have modernized it. I changed a few things just because there were a few words that even I myself had to look up. What does this mean? So he has stated, they have a hope of being hereafter freed from corruption. It hence follows that they groan like a woman in pain until they shall be delivered. But it is a most suitable similarity. It shows that the groaning of which Paul speaks will not be in vain and without effect, for it will at length bring forth a joyful and blessed fruit. We all know the outcomes, for the most part, the outcomes of childbirth, right? Of the labor pains that are coming. We have this beautiful work of God that comes out crying, right? And you see it for the first time, as I know now, I have experienced that. I can say I have experienced that at the age of, uh, what was it? I was 37, I think, when it happened. At the age of 37 that I saw my daughter being born. What a sight it was. But before that, there was some serious pain going on. Not me personally, but maybe my ears. <laughs> but uh, my wife was going through some pain. As I know many of the moms here have experienced that. But when she came out, what was it? It was a blessed and joyful fruit. That is the illusion that is being given here of the creation groaning together in labor pains. Of us groaning in labor pains. The toil, the anguish, the tragic events that happen in our lives in our families. But we know that one day that blessed fruit, that glorification will happen. And that is going to be the redemption of our bodies. As it reads in verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. This is what we're waiting for. If you are saved, if you have been um, regenerated and you are been, been adopted spiritually into the family of God, what we are awaiting as it states here, the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, it is the full, the final adoption. The, 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 the papers being uh, signed happens when you are saved, but when you are actually sent from wherever you are and you go and you live with your adopted family and you, and you have your father and your adopted, your adopted father and your adopted mother there, that is the illusion that it says the adoption of son, the redemption of our bodies is the finality. You are now in the family of God. You are in the family of God because the papers are signed, but we are awaiting that redemption. As it states in 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5, of what the redemption of our bodies is, Paul states, For we know that if the tent 
that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. When we are saved, when we are given the Holy Spirit, that is the guarantee of future work. There's more. There's more to happen. This is not it. And we see here the language of our body as a tent, an earthly tent, an earthly house that is going to then be given a house that is not made with human hands. That's what it's really saying, not made with hands. That is a phrase that is used before to state that it is something that God is making. It is eternal. And that is going to be our heavenly dwelling, our our redeemed body that is further clothed. So what we're seeing here is something of what we call, I call it because it's a term, it's a a phrase that is used that that was made by other theologians. It's called the already and the not yet, which was mentioned by our brother Gerardo. And I wish Eric was here to listen to that because we've talked about that before. The already, not yet. That was a very important subject with us. But let me, let me give you a definition of what the already, not yet is. Just so you know that this is throughout scripture. The already, not yet is a way of summarizing the recognition that something decisive has already happened in the event of coming to faith but that the work of God in reclaiming the individual for himself is not yet complete. So the already is our salvation, our regenerated soul, our being given and led by the Holy Spirit. But the not yet, what is to come, is the redemption of our bodies, the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of the dead as the church being gathered together with the with the, with the groomsmen, the bride being uh, gathered with the groom. Sometimes this is compared to if of those that know a little bit of history that in World War II there was something called D-Day, and there was something called V-Day. D-Day was the day that the troops entered into France and there was this big battle and that in principle, that defeat that the allied groups, in other words, the United States and and many of the European countries, they defeated Germany at that time, the Nazis, but it wasn't the final defeat. It was, there was still more battles to go. That's what we call D-Day, but there's one called V-Day. That's the day that it was declared victory because the Nazis surrendered. It was over. See, D-Day has already happened for us if we are saved, if we are walking by the Spirit. 
But V-Day, Victory Day, is still to come. And that's usually one of the, the ways that it's explained. I think it's a very good way of explaining that the, the tension of the already but not yet is still going on right now. So there's still a lot of battles to be fought and to be won. But the final victory, which is won by our Savior, Jesus Christ, will happen at the end of time. And what is this hope of glorification that is given in the last two scriptures that we read? Which states, for in this hope we, are, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. So that gives us one declaration of what hope is. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Again, as I spoke earlier, we do not hope of something that we know is fact in the way that we hope here. We hope here, like I explained, oh, I hope the Dodgers win the World Series. I hope I get that promotion. I hope, you know, in a few years I can, I can own that home. That is a hope that we are not sure of. But the hope that the scriptures talks about is something that is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit, by God, that it is true, that it is going to happen. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 4.18. As Paul states, As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. In other words, temporary. But the things that are unseen are eternal. So here is making two distinctions. What we see with our eyes right now, this is temporary. The afflictions of this present time is temporary. But the glory that is to come, what we have yet not seen with our eyes or experienced, that is sure. That is eternal. And the writer of Hebrews also states to us, this is a very common verse. We should all have this memorized. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So the hope that we talk about in normal, um, in normal today talk, in our language of today, as I said earlier, I hope this happens or I hope that happens, but we're not sure. That is not faith. The hope that is in the Bible is also faith because we know that it is going to happen. We know that it will come to pass. And for those that might say, gosh, this is, um, I, you know, I, we're called to hold it with patience and we're like, but this is taking too long. This, no, like, I, I, I don't want to go through this anymore. And God continues to have you there. And you're like, God, why are you keeping me in here? God's timing is perfect and just. Why? Because that is who he is. So when we are impatient, as little of a sin as may we talk about impatience, we are not trusting in the God's timing. Because it states, the hope that we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let's be patient 
in God's timing. God knows what he's doing. God has decreed it from before the foundation of the world. And although sometimes we don't like it and we don't like that experience, it ultimately is for our good. Because what does Romans 8.28 say? God works all things for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. So what are the reflections of this sermon for daily practice? I have two major subjects and three small ones in the second one. First one, the results of the fall are coming to an end. We know this. We don't live our lives saying, I don't know if God's ever going to really come back. I don't know if God's ever going to recreate this into that new heavens and new earth. We don't know if he's ever really going to redeem this body. We just know other things. We know for certainty by the scriptures that this creation will be glorified. Our body, which is part of this creation, will be glorified. And we will be eternally with our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That body that we've seen when we visited our brother Eric, that is a lowly state, but that is not final. We will all be glorified together with our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, worshiping him face to face for all eternity. Number two, let's live in hope, not in futility. This is a little similar to the first one, but as we say, we do not live not knowing what's going to happen. We know, we believe, I hope, in that verse in Romans 8.28, that God works all things for good. We believe that, don't we? We are to live our lives knowing that God has everything set and everything is in motion for his glory and our good, as that verse states. So that means that everything matters. Everything we do, everything we think, everything we say matters. God has decreed everything from the beginning of this world. We are working for what he has commanded us. Everything we do matters. Working for the future. What you teach your kids matters. This is why we've spoken about how we need to shield our children, especially right now that their minds are are just being molded and they don't understand everything, which we don't either, but we have a lot more experience. We need to shield our children from those things of the world that are trying to indoctrinate them into a separation from their parents' religion, from their parents' teachings, from their parents' convictions. Everything that we do matters. Everybody that we help, everybody that we love, everybody that we say good morning and good night to matters. And because of this, we live to please God. God not only has commanded us, we are told 
We are told to please God, to live for God, to obey God. And it's not just because we do it because we love our God, because it matters. I care what my God thinks of me. So every time I have a bad thought or I have a bad inclination, the new nature, I mean the old, I'm sorry, the old nature comes up because somebody cut me off or somebody spoke to me in the wrong way. It matters how I react. It matters. We live to please God. And as we've stated multiple times, and as our pastor stated last week, and as we need this more than ever right now, for those that are in affliction, that are in sufferings, the sufferings and afflictions cannot be compared to the glory that awaits us. We know the truth. We know what we are headed to. And although we could suffer here and now, we know that it is for a purpose. We know that it is for our Lord and our Savior who has shown us so much mercy and love and compassion and sweetness because we shouldn't be standing here breathing when it comes to all the sins that we have done because it hasn't just been one. Let's be real. It's been multiple multiple times that we have committed cosmic treason as a brother in the Lord R.C. Sproul once said we live for our God and these scriptures are for our edification to make us love our God and obey him because we have a new nature let's pray dear Lord Dear God, dear Savior, dear Father, dear Comforter, we come before you, Lord, as we read these scriptures, as you continue to work in our souls, as we are about to take one of your means of grace that keeps us abiding in you, by the symbolic eating of your flesh and the drinking of your blood because you are the bread of life. Lord, we need you more than ever because our souls and our spirits sometimes can get lowly. Sometimes we read these scriptures and somehow it just doesn't, we're not, we don't apply them to ourselves or we go out into the world and we forget about them. Please, Lord, do not let us forget these things. Do not let us forget the principles that you've given us, the foundation that you've given us, that you are Lord, that you are in control of everything. And one day, both the creation and the bride of Christ will be glorified and worshiping you face to face for all eternity. And as our brother, our pastor says, you can take that to the bank. We know, Lord, that it is true. Lord, consecrate this time. Make it holy, Lord, for your glory, for your exaltation, for your worship. And that by the good that comes out of that, that, that is our souls worshiping you and being, and being uh, sanctified that we know that everything matters. 
for these things, Lord, we pray in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.